Now we're ready. Well, last week we began looking at 1 John by looking at the Apostle John. And this morning, if you're not in 1 John already, we are going to read the first part of it, so go ahead and turn there now. Um, I mentioned last week that almost every false teaching about who Jesus is can be answered by this letter. Almost any false teaching about Jesus, who He is, can be answered by this letter. And today we'll begin putting that to the test a little bit because I want to focus on one thing in particular about Jesus today. It's Solomon who wrote in Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun. False teachings today, by and large, are really ancient heresies that have been warmed over and put into new clothes. And the Apostle John was dealing with some of those ancient heresies when he wrote this letter. Now, remember that we the, the books of John that he wrote, they were written three, four, perhaps five decades after the other Gospels were written. Seven, eight, maybe even eight decades after Jesus had ascended back into heaven. So John was dealing with a church that was more mature in its understanding of biblical doctrine, yet the church was being attacked in all kinds of new ways by false teachers, false doctrines, the doctrines of demons, as, as Paul puts it. And that seems to be, have been a, um, a motivation, if not the main motivation, behind the writing of 1 John. In the late 1st century, you had the beginning of all kinds of anti-Trinitarian heresies. All kinds of heresies that attacked the idea that God is three in one. He's one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In various ways, there were different things coming about that tried to undermine a faithful understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, who the Father is, who the Holy Spirit is, and, and more. And we'll touch on some of those as we progress through this book. But some were teaching that spirit was good, but all flesh was evil. It's a form of something that came known as Gnosticism. Some were teaching that spirit was good, but all flesh was evil. So Jesus could not have come in human flesh. Well, that would mean Jesus wasn't fully man. And First John's going to deal with that head on, actually. Others were teaching that Jesus was a created being. And if He was a created being, then He couldn't be fully God. So there were also others then teaching that all manner of false things about how Christians should live. Should Christians abstain from this? Should Christians do that? Can Christians do this? Can Christians do that? And John's going to tackle the root issues of those throughout this book as well. So this book ends up being how the, the really the patriarch of the early church, the elder statesman, the last living apostle, decided to respond to some of those false teachings, and so we're going to begin looking at that right now. We're going to read through verse 3. I'm going to focus on just one phrase today. So let's read 1 John 1, 1 through 3. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So what we'll be talking about has to do with 
Are we able to have fellowship with God? What constitutes the basis for our fellowship with one another? As we begin to think about these things, let's pray. Father, we come to you today with open Bibles, and I pray open hearts and open minds. Father, it is my earnest prayer that what I'm about to say is pretty much review for most of us. Maybe I will be able to say something in a, in a way that might get someone to think in a new way about you, and, and to that, I, I leave it to you, and I give you the praise to work through your word that I'm about to talk about. May it be your word that, that penetrates our hearts and not my opinions. Lord, help us to rely on the bedrock foundation of Scripture, your revelation of yourself, and I pray that lives will be changed today as a result. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And, and so I, I, I want to focus on that one phrase today. What was from the beginning? What was from the beginning? You read this and you might just think that this is a unique way to begin a New Testament letter. You know, after all, Paul always says, you know, Paul at the beginning of his letters. He identifies himself. Peter does that too. Even in 2nd and 3rd John, though John doesn't use his name, he writes the elder to the chosen lady and her children in 2nd John. And in 3rd John he writes the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. But this is a very different way to start a New Testament letter. It's unique. It's also reminiscent of the way John begins his gospel. If you recall how the gospels begin, Matthew starts with a genealogy. Mark starts with the beginning of the gospel of God and talks about Jesus' baptism almost right from the beginning of that gospel. Luke has this kind of prologue where he says, I'm, I'm doing this to, to convince you of the things we've been taught, Theophilus. And then John goes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Nothing has come into being that has come into being. All things came into being through Him. So, what we have just read in 1 John 1 is, is kind of, it sounds sort of similar to John 1. What was from the beginning. There are in those five English words the doctrine of the eternality of Jesus Christ. And that's the doctrine I want to talk about to you this morning. The eternality of Jesus. The idea. No, it's not even an idea. The truth. That there has never been a time when Jesus was not. And there never will be a time when Jesus is not. You know, just as we believe that God is an eternal God, that He has eternally been God, so too, and this is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith, it's something you need to be convinced is true this morning. Jesus has always been, always is, and forever will be. And hopefully, like I prayed... Hopefully, I don't have to convince anybody of that this morning. But if, if not, I hope you will be convinced. And hopefully, you know, if we are already convinced, we walk out of here a little more confident in it and maybe a lot more equipped to defend it. I want to start with that phrase itself, what was from the beginning. Because part of our understanding of Scripture is that every bit of it is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's a Greek word, 
there in 2 Timothy 3.16, Theonoustos. It is God-breathed. And that means that in the original Greek and Hebrew and even a little Aramaic mixed in, God spoke even through the grammar. Now there are different translations, and we can debate translations, and there are lots of good translations, but when we get down to what God breathed out in the original Greek, in the original Hebrew, we have to believe that even the grammar He chose to write with through the apostles' pens is inspired. And in 1 John 1, 1, the glory in the grammar is in that little English word, was. That word sets the foundation. Was is translated from a little Greek word, ain. <coughs> it's a, an ada with a nu, uh, our equivalent of a, an n. Anyway, it's a word, that, it's the word is in the imperfect tense. And before you think this is all going to be a grammar lesson, I am going to share some grammar with you this morning. I want you to indulge me, though. The imperfect tense is something that indicates continuous past action. A continuous past action. In other words, what John is writing here is an echo of what he wrote in the Gospel of John. There in the beginning was, continually in the past, the Word. (coughs) And the Word was, continually in the past, with God. And the Word was continually in the past God Himself. So John, writing in the 90s... (coughs) Hang on, I'm going to get my drink here. (coughs) John's writing a few decades after Jesus has ascended into heaven. But he's making a, a dogmatic statement. No uncertain terms here for the early church that Jesus physically walked this earth and he was and is not just a man. Now he was a man and he is a man even today in glorified form, but he wasn't just that. He was and is eternal. He was and is God. He always has been. Now, I say that and that's not controversial in this room. It's not controversial, I hope, in most Bible-believing churches today. Otherwise, we have to question whether or not they're Bible-believing. But that said, we live in a culture... Well, let me back up for a second. It's not just enough to know and agree with it. It's not just enough to know and agree with sound doctrine. Because we've been called to defend it. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that we must be ready to give a hope for the, a defense for the hope that is within us with gentleness and reverence. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 16 that we've got to stand firm and be immovable, steadfast in the faith. We can't do that if when we are confronted on questions of central doctrine, we don't know how to defend it. So, we must stand firm in the truth today. And I I can't overstate that. Because, folks... We live in a culture in which Christianity seems to be getting more wishy-washy by the day. I talked last week about how I'd taken a social media hiatus. I wish I would have stayed off of it this week. Man, I tell you what. God is doing something. God is in control. And I wish I knew everything about everything. But maybe sometimes I'm glad I don't. But we live in a culture in which Christianity is getting more wishy-washy by the day. And that's so dangerous because 
It's coming at a time when holding firm to the Word of God is under attack in so many different ways. And sometimes it's from our own governments. Many state governments now in particular. California in the past couple weeks has just... It's already off the rails and it, it went further along off the rails. But teenagers are graduating from high school and from youth groups where they've been sequestered off from the congregation for fun and games in the hope that they'll come back But while they may get their high school diplomas, they're graduating from church biblically illiterate. Untrained by negligent parents and churches and sent off into the world and jobs and college campuses that are ready to eat their faith alive. And oftentimes it's eating up a dead faith. Folks, we've got to know that Jesus is not just... He's not, period, a created being. But He is the Creator Himself. He has always existed. This is one of the many, and there are several dividing lines between Christianity and something that is less than Christianity. Today, most of the world considers Jehovah's Witnesses a branch of Christianity. I would say that this issue is one of the issues that divides us from them. Mormons, same reason. And there's a lot more reasons, but this is one of them. But beyond that, if we're going to be those who proclaim Jesus to the world and to our families and up that hill next week to our community, then we need to know and and be proclaiming Jesus as He has revealed Himself. And we need to be as confident about that as we possibly can. So with that in mind, we have our thesis statement this morning. We have John saying in both his gospel and in this letter that Jesus was in the beginning. That Jesus was and is eternal. That Jesus is God. That Jesus always has been God. But any good thesis needs support. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at biblical proof from the Old and New Testaments that what John said about Jesus isn't just John's opinion. So let's start the very first place we can start in Genesis 1. Genesis 1. I've got to do a better job of breaking this Bible in, folks. I got this Bible as a gift a few weeks ago and I've just been waiting to use it for preaching and now I'm using it for preaching and you don't want to cooperate quite yet. At least not at the very front and the very back. But anyway, Genesis 1, I shouldn't need to... You probably know what I'm about to say. In the beginning, God. And stop right there. In the beginning, God. It doesn't say in the beginning God was created. It doesn't say in the beginning God came into being. No, it says in the beginning God. God already was what was from the beginning. God already was. The skeptic says, now hold on a minute. That's talking about God the Father. Jesus the Son comes much, much later. Well, okay then, what about that? Because I agree, God the Father is in mind here, but He's not all that's in mind. Because again, and uh, some more grammar for you today. The first verse of the Bible points us to the Trinity. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, if you've ever seen that, 
Maybe this is review for you. But the first verse, and it's not explicit. Genesis 1-1 does not say there are three persons in the Trinity. I'm not trying to, to say it's saying something that doesn't. It doesn't say there's a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit even. But it does tell you that there is more than one in the one true God. There is more than one in the one true God. You see, the Greek, or not Greek, the Hebrew word for God in Genesis 1-1 is Elohim. Elohim. You probably have heard preachers say that before. You've probably heard me say it before. You've probably heard Scott say it before. Elohim. And most of the time you see the word God translated in the Old Testament, it's the word Elohim. Or a shortened form of it, El. It's a plural noun. It's a plural noun. The word we translate as God in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, including Genesis 1-1, which even many disbelievers in Scripture know by heart, is a plural noun. So the skeptic could look at that and say, see, there's more than one God. Except for something else. The verb that's connected to it, that is translated created, is the verb bara, and it's singular. Now, that's not a mistake even most English-speaking people would make, although I would argue that many English-speaking people are bad at grammar. Okay? But I, I wouldn't say that, you know, we climbs. You know, I, I, we, we use... We, by, we use proper grammar most of the time <coughs> because it sounds weird otherwise. The word we translate is uh, God is, is plural and the verb created is uh, singular. So could the Bible be having such a glaring error? No. Because the point is to show that there's more than one in the one true God. Hey, Siri. <laughs> the point is, what John 1.3 said is true. Nothing came into being that He, Jesus, did not bring into being. God created, and Jesus was a big part of that. Jesus was from the beginning. Jesus brought the beginning into being. Now, I'm going to come back to this idea in a few minutes, but if Jesus existed from the beginning, and then was active in creation, then we have to ask the question, what was he doing between the time the heavens and the earth were created and the moment he was conceived in the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb? Because we're talking about a period, as I understand it, of at least 4,000 years, about 4,000 years. Okay? Well, what was he doing? I'll tell you what he wasn't doing. He wasn't sitting by the Father's side just waiting for His moment. Jesus was not an inactive part of the Godhead biding His time. On the contrary, there are many events in the Old Testament where God reveals Himself to His creation in unique ways. And the technical term for this is a theophany, an appearance of God. And one of the ways in which theophanies in the Old Testament occurred was when Jesus revealed Himself to men as the angel of Yahweh, or the angel of the Lord. Now sometimes when we see the word angel in the Bible, it does literally mean angel. We think of 
the Archangel Michael, Gabriel. You know, um, but we, we don't need to get hung up on that word because it can and does and oftentimes should be better understood as messenger. And as I understand it, there are many times in the Old Testament where God, the messenger of Yahweh, God sends His messenger. So before the Word became flesh, He came as the messenger of Yahweh. And in fact, John 1 talks about how Jesus explains the Father. And what we see in the Old Testament is that He was already doing this in kind of a preview of what He'd ultimately do in flesh. There are times when we see the angel of the Lord speaking as God, identifying Himself with God, or even claiming to exercise the prerogatives of God. Then there are times in which He shows Himself to be both distinct from Yahweh as His representative, yet identified with Yahweh having the same nature, the same essence. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. But then he writes, The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, and that's Jesus, He has explained Him. I just talked about that. So, I wholeheartedly believe we can look at many of these Old Testament scenes and say with confidence that these are times where Jesus was being what Hebrews 1 verse 3 says He is. The image of the invisible God, the exact representation of His nature. He Himself being fully God. It's Jesus showing up in the Old Testament before He was born. And I want to give us a few examples of that. So if you're in Genesis... Flip over to Genesis 16. I'll show us a couple of examples from Genesis today. and I wish I had time to go through every single one of these that I believe we see this as. And, and, and I probably don't even remember all of them. But Genesis 16 is the first time we see the angel of the Lord. And it's after Abraham, who's then called Abram, had been promised by God that he would have a son. But he was an older man, and his wife Sarai was an old woman too. And Sarai, in, in this tragic decision, decides to give her maid Hagar to Abram, and she conceives. And then Sarai treats Hagar, Hagar uh, very harshly, so Hagar hits the road. She flees. And I'm going to pick up reading in verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her, Hagar... By a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord, and, and remember when we see that, that small capital O-R-D there in Lord, it's, it's Yahweh. So then the angel of Yahweh said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of Yahweh said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Be'er Laharoi 
Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. I'll stop there. I want you to just notice a couple things here. Notice the angel says, I will multiply your descendants. That's not something angels do. That's something God does. In fact, that's what God had said He would do back in Genesis 12. He used that same language. Notice too in verse 13, Hagar responds, Then she called on the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. So she recognized this was the voice of God Himself, and she said, You are the God who sees. Have I even remained alive after seeing Him? So this Egyptian maid did not believe she was speaking to just a messenger, but to God Himself. And yet God, no one has seen God at any time. John writes, so who was it? Beloved, I understand it as Jesus. Pre-incarnate Christ. Now, again, I wish I had more time. You know, I guess I could keep you here all day if I really, really wanted to, but you might walk out on me. I do want to walk through one more specific example, though. Genesis 22. And this is again with Abram. He's now called Abraham. He has a son by Sarah named Isaac. And God tells him to go to the place He will show him to sacrifice Isaac. To take his life. So Abraham goes and he puts Isaac on the pyre and is about to take the knife to him. And I want to pick up in verse 11. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering, for a burnt offering, in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord. Yahweh will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, Yahweh, it will be provided. Then the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, and I hope I'm not throwing you off when I use the name Yahweh there, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And the reason I bring this is up because it talks about the angel of Yahweh saying this, not Yahweh himself. Except they are one and the same, guys. Here they are. Now, I, I, I should warn you, don't go and read your Old Testament and assume that every time you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's automatically Jesus. Pay attention to the context. But in the beginning of verse 15, the angel identifies himself as the Lord. He says, by myself I have sworn. He is the one who blesses. His is the voice to be obeyed. And again, as I understand it, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Revealing himself as a messenger of Yahweh, but at the same time, he too is God himself. And there are more of these. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to run through just a few more. Genesis 31, the angel of the Lord appears to Jacob. 
in a dream. Remember that one? He appears to Jacob in a dream at Bethel, which is uh, the place Jacob had previously made a pillar to God back in chapter 28. The most famous angel of the Lord passage has to be Exodus 3. Moses in the burning bush, uh, verses 1 through 6. And you, you can't read that and conclude that's an ordinary angel, as if angels are ordinary to begin with, but it's the Lord Himself. Jesus in Numbers 22, the story of Balaam and the donkey. You want proof that God is God? Go to a talking donkey. <laughs> Balaam acknowledges at the end of that interesting encounter that it was not just any angel of the Lord with him, but God Himself. <clears throat> Judges 2. Judges 2 recalls the Exodus and says it was the angel of the Lord who brought Israel out of Egypt. Judges 6 recalls how the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and the angel is identified in verse 14 of, of Judges 6 as Yahweh Himself. In Judges 13, the angel of Yahweh appears to Manoah and his wife who would become the parents of Samson. And by the end of that encounter, they know that they have seen God and yet still live. David saw the angel of the Lord in 1 Chronicles 21. Elijah saw the angel of the Lord in 1 Kings 19. And as I understand it, this was the second person of the Trinity showing up amongst His people before He was even born. And I encourage you to search the Scriptures yourselves because so much could be said about all of these. But what we find is that the angel of Yahweh is a messenger delivering the Father's decrees, explaining the Father. He is the guider and protector of Israel. He is showing His people the way of salvation and preserving those who follow Yahweh. He is the instrument of judgment upon Israel, rebuking them for disobedience as the one who will ultimately judge them. He's the one who promises a better future, a sure hope. And He is the one who is the agent of refreshment, bringing renewal to those who are oppressed by the curse of sin. In short, He sounds like someone who does a lot of the same things Jesus did during His earthly ministry. And like what Jesus will do when He returns. The angel of Yahweh sounds a lot like Jesus because as I understand it, He is. But know that these aren't the only ways Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. In Genesis 32, Jacob is alone. And he's racked with fear of seeing his estranged brother Esau. And a man wrestles with him until daybreak. And the socket of Jacob's thigh ends up being dislocated. But at the end of this, the man, or not recognizes, renames Jacob and calls him Israel. And when Jacob, Israel, asks the man his name, the man only answers, why is it that you ask my name? And the Bible says Jacob knew he has wrestled with no, uh, he, he hasn't wrestled with a mere man because he names the place Peniel, which literally means, for therefore I have seen your face like seeing God's face. Jacob knew he was wrestling with God, and yet no one sees the Father at any time. So who was it? Jesus. Daniel 3, in the time of the Babylonian exile, 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are put into the fiery furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar. They wouldn't worship the image of the king. Their faith was so strong that they said, even if he doesn't save us, we're still not going to serve you. So into the furnace they went, but you know the story. When Nebuchadnezzar looked in, he was astounded. He says, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. One like a son of the gods. That's the best Nebuchadnezzar could come with, up with at the time. But we know better. He didn't say that by accident. Daniel didn't record that by accident. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And some commentators disagree, but I, I believe it was Christ. Good. <laughs> Just maybe, maybe two or three more. You don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 6. <laughs> Isaiah 6 is written 750 or so years before Jesus was born. And the prophet sees Yahweh seated on his throne. The train of his robe fills the temple. And the angels are covering their eyes and crying out, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. We say, well, it could be talking about the Father. Could be. Except that in John 12, 41, he explicitly says, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. And Jesus is the one of whom Isaiah was speaking. If you think about all of the places Jesus shows up in the Old Testament, what He did before He was born foreshadowed His earthly ministry. The Word did a lot before He became flesh. Yet at the same time, we've got to realize this too. Jesus did save His best work for when He did become flesh. And that is something the Apostle John will talk about a lot in 1 John. And it's something I'll talk about more later on in our study. But as the God-man, Jesus was the Father's messenger. As the God-man, He guided His disciples and protected them. As the God-man, He pronounced judgment on the nation of Israel when they rejected Him. And He will judge the living and the dead according to 2 Timothy uh, Yeah, 2 Timothy. As the God-man, He is the ultimate agent of refreshment, giving new life to people like you and like me who are dead in their trespasses and sins. He is the one who raises us up out of the depths by His grace and gives us peace. Jesus is the God-man who wrestled with sin and prevailed that we might ultimately see the face of God. And yes, Jesus is the God-man who saves those who place their faith in Him through the fire of judgment because He took the judgment in their place. And now He sits at the right hand of His Father until His enemies are made His footstool. Before we close, I'll point out two more. Two more prophecies that we usually associate with the birth of Jesus. But I want you to listen to how Jesus is talked about in these Christmas prophecies, so to speak. First, Isaiah 9, verse 6. There was a, a song done to the... You know, For unto us a child born. You know, 
unto us, a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. I wonder if any of you have ever wondered, why is that a Christmas prophecy and he's talking about Eternal Father? Well, because literally that should be a Father of Eternity. Jesus is in control of eternity. He is the father of eternal purpose. And Micah 5 2, this is another one that we hear around Christmas time. And what does Micah write? But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me. This is God speaking. To be ruler in Israel. And listen to this. His goings forth are from long ago. From the days of eternity. Written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Speaking of Him existing in eternity past. Beloved, Jesus is what was from the beginning. And you must affirm an eternal Jesus Christ, beloved. Because if there's no eternal Christ, there's no eternal Trinity. If there's no eternal Trinity, then Jesus is not fully God. If Jesus is not fully God, He's a liar. If Jesus is a liar, then we can't trust His Word. If we can't trust His Word, why are we here? Our faith is lost because we have no biblical Christ, no Savior, no hope. And to quote Paul, we are the most pitied among all. Praise God that what Hebrews 13 verse 8 says is true. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Praise God. Because as we took prayer requests this morning, some of us have storms that we're in. Some of us just got out of storms. Some of us will be in storms tomorrow. But Jesus will be the same. Jesus will be the same no matter what. Because He's been the same the whole time. He didn't become our Savior in the womb of the virgin. You know, we sang the song. And I brought it up here for a reason. uh, Where did I see it? Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin. He came forth. He didn't come into being. He was already being. He just came forth in human flesh in Bethlehem. Folks, We've got to understand that Jesus is eternal. And I hope this morning we're a little better prepared to defend Him as eternal. So may you and I, may we all, in response to the glory of Jesus Christ, respond as Isaiah did when he saw what he saw. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am unclean. Here I am. Send me. And that's my prayer for you today. That we come to an end of ourselves in light of the glory of the eternal Christ. And yet at the same time, we know that He is powerful to save. And so we say, here I am, Lord. Send me. Let's pray. Father, we praise You. We thank You for throughout the history of Your creation, revealing Yourself to us. We praise Your Son, Jesus,
who being a man is God as well, the Father of eternity and the one who has shown Himself to be our advocate. Our advocate. Even before His physical birth. We glory in the cross, Father. We glory even more in the empty tomb. Victory over the effects of the cross. For by them our sins are put away forever and we are given everlasting life. So just as Jesus has proven to be your messenger from the beginning, grant to us the grace and the mercy and the resolve and the power and the, 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 the character and the steadfastness, the faithfulness to be His messengers in this world. Father, if there is someone here who can honestly, when they look within themselves, say, I, I, don't, I don't really know Him. Father, I pray you would come into their life right now, right right today. Make new life, Father, where there was none before. And grant to this church that it might be a beacon for your glory of the eternal Jesus Christ. We ask this in his holy name. Amen.